My name's Josh Alvarez. And I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you're listening to The Beleaguered, episode 121 of Cinepunks. Cinepunks. Okay, first things first, we have Justin Lore on the show with us today. Justin. What up? Happy to have you, buddy. I'm so sorry that we're having such a hard time getting this shit together. You know what I'm saying? I'm having computer. I got hit by car. You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, mm-hmm. it's been a it's been a week, man. I just started yeah. having solid stools since Oklahoma City last week. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, man. What? I've been Jackson Polking every toilet between Oklahoma City and uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Like, like high art, baby. The highest. Yeah, it's well, brutal. Like, like Michael Bay's classic. 2007 coming of age story transformers told us no sacrifice no victory mm, jesus christ true. uh yeah listeners we just want to let you know this episode was supposed to be a halloween special that was the original <laughs> plan uh but we had technical difficulties we had life issues josh is living in phoenix for a couple months so he had to like get his butt out to phoenix which apparently involved a ton of his butt shitting oh so sweet baby jesus yeah yeah man if you've ever and, seen and, aluminum and, siding power washed with a hose that's kind of what it's Christ. been like yeah yeah all man. right all right all right just all right. my butt i'm not easily grossed out but yeah. let's move on all oh, right, right come right, on right. sorry oh, God what was that was that gauche <clears throat> my bad the point is, is that we apologize for the lateness of this episode. It's been a while since we've had a new Cinepunks episode. Uh, but also, we just want you to know the blood, sweat, tears, and apparently feces that went into bringing this to you today. But we are so excited. Uh, one of my favorites is when we did our crossover episode on the Phantasm series. So getting to return to having Justin Lure, uh, my other favorite co-host, because fuck Doug Tilly, uh, <laughs> have him on the show is really great. And we're really happy. And I want to point out that we're making this happen when we still have an unfinished Doug Tilly episode. So yeah, that's like really putting salt in the wo- wound on old Doug Tilly. And that makes me happy. <laughs> Not that he'll ever know, because he probably won't ever listen to this, that jerk off. God bless him. Can Canadians act differently than than we do. So, you know, that's how come they don't listen to quality <laughs> Cinepunks programming. <laughs> something in, there's something in the maple syrup. Yeah. Syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Syrup. Something in the I water. Don't I don't know what it's a boot. <laughs> it's in the patin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this episode, like every episode of well, every show on this podcast is brought to you by uh primarily you, those of you who support us on Patreon. Uh, I'll be straight up. We've had a series of technical difficulties getting this done. Uh, and that's because, you know, all three of us are not rich. And so we don't have the nicest, fanciest computers, and sometimes things go wrong. So, I mean, technically, Josh has my last computer that was, you know, the one that was giving me trouble before. So uh, it, it, it <laughs> takes some effort. And the only way that we can get towards having a more stable schedule being able to work around stupid technology is uh, through your support that helps us pay for things like our website and hopefully over time will help us do things like uh, get nicer equipment and make sure that we can record when we're able to record. So uh, thanks to everyone on Patreon. We promise some more content coming your way uh, as soon as we can. Uh, And just a reminder to those of you listening to this episode who are on Patreon, uh, I think I owe at this point a few of you uh, Cinepunk shirts, and we have, here's a scoop, we have some new designs coming. Oh, we do, uh, and they're, they're so good. They're pretty good. They're pretty good. So, so good. Uh, I'm more than willing to hook up 
Patreon supporters with our latest designs. Just hit me up. Remind me that you need a shirt. Let me know if you like one of the new designs we're going to launch. Maybe not this week, but soon. Uh, and I'll hook you up, all right? Yeah, so, and make yeah, sure you take pictures wearing them. Make sure you take pictures wearing them. Yeah, tag us and uh, tell all your followers how cool you are because of your shirt, so on and so forth. Your cinema. Yeah, maybe shirt. make a maybe make a TikTok of you opening the package. Oh, no, don't do, you don't have to do that. I'm just yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, we're also supported by LVAC. Uh, let's pull on uh, Mr. Justin Lore. Justin Lore. Yes. Uh, what? What? Why should people care about the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations Corporation? Well, for one, they're the premier screen printing company of the Lehigh Valley, the greater Lehigh Valley area. There are several other uh, pretenders to the throne of screen printing in the Lehigh Valley, but Chris Reject has mercilessly and fucking effortlessly beat them back. If you want quality screen printing that is at a unreasonable and detrimental to the bottom line price of Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, you need to go to Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations with your idea. Not only are they dedicated to uh, environmentally friendly practices, they're also open to uh, labor friendly practices. They, you know, they they give you the option of like if you want T-shirts that are union made, they give you that option. So they're 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 you know, they're open to those things. They're also um, dedicated to the craft of bringing the best possible version of the vision you have for your merchandise to life. They have a staff of graphic designers who are very patient. We're very knowledgeable, who can give you advice on what would look good, what wouldn't, what they would change, what they wouldn't change. You know, just little things like that. Like I said, they go above and beyond what they need to, and some would say what they ought to, when it comes to bringing <laughs> your vision for your fucking stupid band t-shirt to life. Like, let's say you have, you are in a cover band of, I don't know, The Mentors, called like El, El Duce and the Donkey Dicks. If you want to bring that abomination to life on a T-shirt, <laughs> they will help you do that at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. And here's the best part. Are you, are you ready? Chris Reject has a pathological need to do a good job. Okay? <laughs> it's one of his few redeeming qualities. But the best part is that it comes at the benefit of his own well-being. Chris <laughs> would rather do the best possible job that he can than take care of himself. So if you go there and you, you, you say, like, I want my mentor's cover band T-shirt made. Look at the donkey dicks. Chris will lose sleep over the process of bringing you that T-shirt. <laughs> Let's, I think the clearest testament to his commitment is this. During the pandemic, right, I was able to place orders, and though they were on a severe delay, eventually get my shirts. Now, does that mean Chris asked his employees to come in and work in unsafe conditions? Oh, no. My man was in there by himself running a multi-head automatic press by himself so that he could get orders out to people who needed them. Uh, why did he do that? Despite the fact that he has a staff that he could have bullied into coming in and risking their safety, because he cares about the people who work for him. Also, he's, he also he's also not well. He's also not yeah, well. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to give you a, uh, we're trying to give you two messages here. 
the reality is this is the place you should be going to get screen printing. And one of the reasons for that is that Chris Reject needs help. And, you know, we're kind of fascinated by that, too. So we, we want to see how things work out when more and more of our listeners bring him business because we think it'll ruin him. Really, the business <laughs> will continue to grow. He'll get more and more money and he'll slowly go insane. And it'll be amazing. Yeah. Everybody wins. <laughs> So that website is xlvacx.com. We also want to thank our sponsors at Essex Coffee Roasters. Uh, Essex Coffee Roasters offers specialty grade coffee. Hang, hang, to hang, order. hang on, hang on, just a second there. It broke up a little yeah. bit. Can we start again with that ad? Sure. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we can start again. Uh, go back to what it. Meant back. I don't know the lines of that song. <laughs> I'm sorry, Aaron. I'm sorry. It's the most famous Bane song. It's the Bane song that buttered your bread. And Whoa. I'm out here forgetting the words. Man. I'm sorry, buddy. Dude. But it is true that S's Coffee Roasters offer specialty grade coffee, roasted to order for the most fresh and delicious home brewing experience. Essex is committed to accessible quality coffees, offering education on coffee and brewing to all of their customers. Here's the reality. Aaron was in a bunch of bands. We always talk about Bane. He was yeah. also in Converge. Yeah, Converge. He also played in Ten Yard Fight. So my man... I, he, he was he in Ten Yard Fight? He was part of their... He did backup on tours, yeah. Okay. So... My man, he, he did, it, it, they talk about, I, I'll be fair, I didn't know that. I saw that in the Bane documentary, the new one. So, um, yeah, he, he, he'd be on tour in any number of his bands, and he'd be questing for good coffee. And it's actually hard to find good coffee. And in reality, a lot of times, good coffee gets conflated with, I don't know, elitism. a certain kind of elitism. Yeah, little yeah. bourgeois attitudes. Yeah, we've all seen Mulholland Drive when they bring Angelo to Angelo Bear, you know the guy, the composer. They bring him an espresso, and it's the finest, it's the finest espresso in the world, and he's just like spitting it. That's how Aaron (laughs) reacted at every diner he went to. (laughs) So Aaron, because he's not a fucking elitist, despite what Justin Lore says, is that he wanted to bring quality coffee to people without the barrier of feeling like you don't know enough or you don't know how to make that coffee at home in a way that's going to be delicious uh, and easy, honestly. And so uh, Essex has really made the effort to make that happen. Right now, if you go to their website at Essex Coffee Roasters, you can enter enter the code CINEPUNKS, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, for 10% off of your order. And I I, got to recommend doing it. I've been drinking nothing but Essex now for like a month and a half, (laughs) and I'm very happy with them. I'm very happy with the quality of the beans I'm getting, with the flavor I'm getting with the variety that they offer. They also have, if you're not a coffee person, a variety of teas that are specialty teas as well. So whatever it is, go check it out. I also like they, you know, Aaron. They have merch, and I got a shirt, and I like the shirt too. So I'm pretty happy with the sponsor all around. <laughs> I gotta get one of them hoodies. Them hoodies is tight, yo. It's just saying. Yo, they really, they really are. Yeah. Again, I'm not usually the person to wear a company logo or whatever, but. Uh, This is reality. Not only is Essex a valuable sponsor to us, so when you go to them, you're supporting the Cinepunks Network. Aaron's also cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like He's been awesome as a friend during this whole thing for me, and like he's such a rad dude. So supporting a dude like that Before we even worked out 
Yeah, before we even worked out any sort of deal for Cinepunks, I went to check out the website and ordered coffee because the reality was I just wanted to support him. He's cool. The the company's cool. His commitment to offering quality. I mean, this is one of the things that we talk about here, right? Offering quality without it seeming like people have to meet some sort of, I don't know, class or personality or whatever it is, bar to get. People should have the best things available to them at an affordable price. That's how I feel. So, uh, And I think that's what Aaron is delivering. So. There you go, Essex Coffee Roasters. Check it out. And did you, you, did you mention the the, the the promo code? I did. I did. Okay. I was getting water in the bathroom. That's why I. Oh, I appreciate that. I didn't hear. You got to say hydrated. Got to say hydrated, baby. Got to say hydrated. Got to. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, what is it that we do right now? What is the there's something we do right at this moment? I don't know, Lord. Do you think you can help us remember what it is that happens at this particular <laughs> moment in the episode? Something about something and something else. Oh, man. Maybe this one, section is... One is good and one is bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it's a little... It, we, we use some terminology for this particular moment. I believe what we do is called three, two, one. Whacking on, on track! I feel like that was all right. Wait. That was okay. Yeah, that was good. That was, that was on time, right? That was, there was no lag there. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to tell. It's over the internet. You're in Arizona. Whatever. Yeah. It's good enough. Yeah, we're Come in three on. separate time zones. It's just what it is. I'm sorry, but uh, it is also time for whacking on track. So, guest Justin Lore, esteemed guest, would you like to go first, second, or third? I'll go. I'll go first. I'll I'll I'll, I'll talk about what what has happened in my life recently. Uh huh. So whack is that. Uh, getting that time of year where like i'm like just super bummed out on things um even though part of the on track was that we defeated donald trump and pulled us back from the brink of fascism uh this country is still in turmoil because he's a fucking crazy person his followers are fucking crazy people so um we're recording this on a monday night on saturday night down in dc there was like fucking mobs of these jerk-off proud boys assaulting people. So that's whack. That sucks. Yeah. Can I just say something real quick here? You know what I find the most confusing about proud boys? It's not, obviously, uh, almost everything about them. It's the, it's the core value, the whole Western chauvinism thing. Yeah. How can anyone say that phrase out loud and not immediately die of embarrassment? Can you think of anything more? Uh, the things that they're celebrating are not just things that I think it's toxic to be celebrating. They're things that like I'm openly embarrassed by. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't even, it's like, it's not just a political problem I have, though that is the most important problem. I also have an aesthetic problem. It's like, not only do I morally oppose what you're doing, I also find it really cringy and gross at like an under the skin level. It'd be like if, if it's not just that they're fascists, but they're, all this, like, uh, you know, not jerking off and, you know, oh, what Western I won't apologize for Western Why the fuck not? Like, I don't. It's, yeah. it's amazing to me. It's like I've, I've never been so disconnected from a group of people, I think, no, in my life. No, the whole Westerns, the Western civilization and Western society thing, it's just a fucking loophole they use. Because they know that they can't say, we won't apologize for white people being better than black people or any other, uh, any other group. So they're like, oh... We'll just say Western civilization because, like, that way that means, like, um, we can include brown people and all that. 
That's the only reason they say Western civilization. Like, if you ask those oh. jerk-offs, define Western civilization, they'd be like, uh, uh, the Shakespeare, you know what I mean? Like, that's all that yeah. is. That's I, I like. And also, I like the idea that it would be Shakespeare. Come out saying that they don't give a shit about like not well, being racist that was, now. Yeah, that that was some guy who was basically saying the quiet part out loud, which is like that's like everyone was making a big deal about it. Like oh, the, the the Proud Boys are splintering. It's like no, they're fucking not. You really think there are like members of the Proud Boys who who were like aghast at the thought of like someone saying like fuck black people like none of those guys were like oh man he's gone too far he has gone yeah, too no. like suck my fucking dick they're all like that that guy was just saying what they all fucking think yeah fuck those guys <sighs> sorry so, justin i just i just was i i've been thinking about that all day so i had to jump in and say it um what's 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 your on track but uh, the on oh, track, that was partly your on track yeah, yeah yeah the on track part was um i mean nothing's really whack i guess um the on track part is that i had a really cool halloween um I watched a lot of cool spooky movies. Um, I told my niece that next year, because we don't, because at the time, like Halloween was like three days before the election. So it was like, there was this looming like specter of like, yeah, we're having a great time right now. But in a few days, like our fate might be sealed to be like Germany in 19 fucking 38. So we couldn't exactly have like the best possible time. So I, I told Brie, I was like, well, next year, you know, we, we couldn't do it this year, but next year we'll go out on Mischief Night. Now, for listener Liam, this, you're going to say, um, Josh and I know what Mischief Night is, but you as a Midwestern person, <laughs> Mischief, Night, <laughs> Mischief Night is traditionally the night before Halloween. Oh. You, go, you go out and do Mischief. Oh, you're referring to Devil's Night that they celebrate in Detroit. Yes, that's what you would know it as, Devil's <laughs> Night. As a Midwesterner, you would know it as Devil's Night. Yeah, I'm not from Detroit, so I don't know what they do. So there. <laughs> there's that. You know, we watched her and I watched Trick or Treat. You know, the um, I forget who did, Michael Lachlan did he he did, Trick or you know fucking Trick or Treat the anthology film. You yeah. mean Trick R Trick R Treat? We watched that. Um, I've also been watching a lot of like cool movies on Shudder lately. Um, today I watched um, a little movie called The Mortuary Collection. Oh, I um, love that. that. Yeah, super fun. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah, and uh, Scare Package, which I also liked. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, we got to see that on the Chattanooga Film Festival. Watched a movie called uh, His House, which oh. I hear it's good. I haven't watched it yet. Holy fucking shit. It's like, it's that really sweet spot of like really depressing and also like fucking horrifying. Sure, sure. Uh, so that's on that's on Netflix. So do you have no reason not to fucking watch that movie? Um, I'm trying to think what else is. There's not really much else. Is, it, 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 I haven't really done much otherwise. Um, I mean, no one should be doing a lot right now, anyway. So no, no. I mean, like, I mean, like, I have Oh, I watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Super amazing fun. film. It. Yeah. Amazing film. Yeah. There's. I mean. There's. Let me look, hang in a second. Let me. I'll keep talking and rambling while I get my letterbox out because I have a list of everything I've watched recently. Um, in my favorite Johns of 2020, letterbox, you can find me at Repair My Next Jack if you want to follow me and critique my, my film watching. Um, I, I, watched, I, I appreciate that because I've had so much trouble keeping up my letterbox. <laughs> I like almost cannot do it. Yeah. And I, and, and I feel guilty about it all the time. Uh, I watched a movie called Blood Vessel that was sort of like a... Uh, oh, yeah. That Nazi movie like, on Shudder, right? Yeah, it's like imagine if if you took uh, Michael Mann's The Keep 
shout out to Ryan Sawyer, his favorite movie of all time. If you took the Keith and you added elements of like, and it was actually a vampire movie, and then you added elements of The Thing and Aliens and, you know, more blatant vampire stuff. I watched a movie called Love and Monsters with Michael Rooker. That was pretty good. Um, I watched the new Brandon Cronenberg John Possessor. Mm. Fucking weird. Love it. Love it. So weird. Um, the Dark and the Wicked, it was just okay. Like, okay. I've seen like a lot of people like hyped about it, and I was like, it was fine, but I wasn't like blown away by it. Then I watched a movie called Amulet, which I was also sort of just like kind of lukewarm on. Oh, I liked it. I liked it. I didn't hate it, but I wasn't. It didn't like whisk me away the way I'd hoped it for. Uh, Vampires versus the Bronx, which was a fucking blast. That movie was it's so, very good. Movie was so much fun. I love the blade worship in that movie. <laughs> um, I watched a Polish movie called "Don't Go One of No Nobody Sleeps in the Woods Tonight," and I wasn't nuts about that. And uh, yeah, other than that, like just besides from like you know the, the Mortuary Collection and, and and Scare Package, that's all I really. Uh, all I've really done recently. Pretty good, man. Cool. Pretty good. All right. Josh, you going or me? I'll go. So, uh, do it. Whack is that I got hit by a car. I was riding my bicycle yeah, with my helmet. Uh, I'm in Phoenix, y'all. So, you know, I've been, uh, I'm on a little bit of a sabbatical from my regular life in Philadelphia. Just taking some time to take some time, as it were. And we're out here, and I only know Mike Cavalieri, friend of the show. And he's busy because he's moving here. And um, otherwise, I don't really know anybody out here. And, you know, just kind of out here with Melani. And she's still working from home because she can work remote. And um, so I, I managed to get a bicycle at a place called the Rusty Spoke Bike Collective, Bicycle Collective. And um, it's cool. Got a used bike and just been riding around town. And it's been pretty interesting. And then the other day, I was uh, in a bike lane, and a car just, like, crept up on my left and didn't stop creeping up on me. And I got my foot up on the door because I saw him coming for me, and he uh, he just didn't stop. And my bike hit the curb, and then I did, like, a forward flip over the handlebars, and the bike went, like, rolling. And uh, I thought I was going to die. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it was terrible. And I heard... Um, the scraping of my helmet against the sidewalk because I wear helmets because oh, that's God. fucking smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the dude just rolled off. So I have no idea who that dude was. And I, all I could tell you is that he's a terrible driver. And um, it was it was pretty beat. But um, thankfully, I only uh, got a couple scrapes and a couple bruises. Nothing broke. And I walked my bike two blocks to a bike store because the handlebars were all janked up and everything was all messed up. And uh, Blackbird Bicycles in downtown Phoenix on Roosevelt, they took care of my bicycle and they fixed it for free. So if you're in this area and because uh, I told them I walked in all bloody and dusty, I was like, hey, y'all, I just got hit by a car. And um, I was like, you think you could uh, help me fix these handlebars? And dude's like, oh, shit. And he fixed them for me. And then that was it. And I was good to go. So big up to that place is pretty dope. Um, and then the following day, Melani and I were going to go on a hike at South Mountain with our dog, George. And uh, we woke up and we went to the car. And somewhere in the nighttime, a motorist crashed into our car and destroyed the back driver's side panel and like the tire well and all that crazy shit. And then drove off. And uh, yeah, didn't leave a note or nothing. So... We woke up to find that our car had been smashed up that we had driven here from Philadelphia. So 
also whack. Not my favorite. So that's that's going on. And then um, other than that, not much on track other than the fact it's pretty warm out here. And my brother's telling me it's like 50 degrees in Philadelphia. So uh, I got some sunshine going, so that's cool. And I ate a donut because, uh, as I was telling Liam earlier, I uh, when I was tumbling with my bicycle almost between my legs and up my ass, I thought, man, if I die without eating donuts, that shit is whack. So I ate some donuts. Pretty dope. And, um, yeah, so that's what I got. Haven't watched anything. I watched, I've been keeping up with The Mandalorian. I watched those episodes. And, oh, God, uh, The Mandalorian is fucking dope. I'm sure. having a time with those. Those are really fun. And I'm working through season two of Gravity Falls, which I am truly in love with. It's amazing. It's super fun. I really, really enjoy that. I love it. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, we haven't really watched anything. I rewatched The Outsiders today just because we went to The Outsiders' house on our way here in Oklahoma. And um, that movie is still so fucking good to me, especially like the extended version that we have. It's just so good. I love it so much. It's still one of those just timeless movies to me that still speaks to me on a very visceral level. So, you know, got to watch that. That was fun. But otherwise, I haven't really watched anything just because we've been just adjusting to life out here, you know? So that's what I got. Liam. I hear you, man. What's up? What do you got, buddy? Well, the first thing on my mind, and this is like uh, less on track because we only just started it, but for listeners who are as stoked on Gravity Falls as we are, um, there's a new show called The Owl House, the creator of which actually worked on uh, Gravity Falls, and the creator of Gravity Falls, uh, Alex Hirsch, does a voice on the show. Uh, it's also a, I would call it an effort by Disney to try to do something weird. You know, that's, I mean, basically that's what Gravity Falls was, right? Mm. Is like the Disney channel being like, what if we tried to do our own weird thing, like weird people? And weirdly it worked, (laughs) but it didn't make enough money for them and they canceled it after two seasons. Uh, the Owl House is also Disney and it's also weird and it's fun in its own way, and I really like it. And now I'm worried, once I get invested in it, it's just going to get canceled because uh, people who love Disney hate weird things, and they're <laughs> monsters who probably like fascism. So uh, if you are someone who does have Disney+, Plus and can check out things on Disney+, Plus, uh, check out The Owl House. Uh, it's very good. So uh, again, for fans of Gravity Falls, I think. Um, Duly noted. So for, for me, I'm going to say my whack because I feel like we're all starting with whack (laughs) as opposed to leaving it towards the end, Uh, is actually uh, this morning I listened to the New York Times has a podcast called The Daily. And I don't listen to it a lot because I find the New York Times frustratingly centrist. But uh, the uh, episode was about the schism in the Democratic Party right now. And so for me, my uh, whack is the Democratic Party. Um, Basically... uh, the party has been so hostile towards anyone even vaguely on the left that uh, uh, they're kind of cutting off their own nose to spite their face. Mm. And it's been so hostile that like straight up on the episode, uh, AOC was like, I almost didn't run for reelection because I felt so unwelcomed. And I just thought like, I get not everybody loves her, but that level of hostility towards someone who's like, 
popular and well liked generally speaking just shows like a, a, a such a closed minded whatever and then the whole point of the episode was they had on this other dude who won in PA who was basically like the party needs to stop talking about all these crazy ideas because it's hard for me to get elected in a Republican district if everyone associates Democrats with things like now now his examples were uh, the Green New Deal oh, and geez. defund the police right well I'm sorry, bro, but if people in Pennsylvania aren't ready to hear that fracking is a bad idea, that's on them. Because uh, it's not just the Democrats out here. It's the rest of the fucking world that's on the same page that fracking is a bad fucking idea. Yeah. And like, you know, he's like, well, what about the people, not just who frack, but who work in restaurants that feed fracking workers? Come on. Are you really... the The idea that like... Okay, well, now that there's no fracking, every restaurant in Pennsylvania is going to go out of business. That sort of like crazy talk is what we have Republicans for. And if Democrats are going to continue to talk about talk like Republicans, we're in a real fucking shitstorm right now. So I, that's that's my whack right now. Is I'm I'm just so frustrated with this fucking system that we're in and these jerk offs. That's like you know, am I going to choose? I, I, you're in a position where you either have to choose between fascism or other people you don't like, or you just don't participate. And honestly. That's what they want. Like, just hearing this dude talk about what it is he hopes for the Democratic Party, he's basically saying, I hope all these progressive people just stop voting for us so we don't have to deal with their bullshit. And I, uh, ugh, it just makes yeah. me really upset. So that's my whack is all that shit. On track, I got to – well, this is a whack and a on track. On track is a bunch of movies I watched for the Philadelphia Film Fest. The whack is I haven't written a single review yet, uh, but I'm going to I'm going to talk about those movies on here. So at least it's not like I was totally irresponsible. Uh, so the first movie I watched as part of the fest was a movie called The Sound of Metal. Have you guys heard about this film? No. no. What is it? So uh, Sound of Metal is a movie about a drummer. And all the descriptors say he's a heavy metal drummer. But if you guys heard this band, it's more like a like a Jesus Lizard knockoff than it would be a traditional like heavy metal band. But it's like he's in a he's in a band that's just him and his girlfriend. He's the drummer. She plays guitar. They tour. They live in a like a, a, a almost like a Silverstream tour van thing. You know, it's like it's mm. it, it kind of feels like a trailer, but it's like a bus, you know? Yeah. And they've really worked it out so it's also a practice space so they can practice on the road. And their whole life is in this thing. And he has gone through recovery. Uh, in fact, I think the fact that the character wears a Youth of Today hoodie for most of the movie is supposed to represent less that he's into uh, straight-edge hardcore and more that he's gone through recovery and he's trying mm. to be clean. Uh, so anyways, is midway this, wait, through... Wait, is this a documentary or is this an uh, actual... Like, no, this is... Scripted? Well, uh, as you know, Riz Ahmed is an actor. Oh, right, uh, right, right. He's right, been right, in a right. variety of films, so it's definitely not a documentary. Okay. And... <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Josh. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and so Riz Ahmed's character, uh, midway through like their big tour, it's like the biggest tour they've ever been on, uh, he loses his hearing. And not like a little bit, he really loses it. He's not fully deaf, but he is as close to deaf as you can imagine. Um, but his life is so wrapped up in the band that at first he refuses to give up and he insists that they try to play a few shows like this, which of course just makes his hearing that much worse right. you know and he starts to lose it even more um and so he's in a tough spot 
because his life is basically over. They can't he can't tour in the band. He has no other skills. And in fact, it's pretty clear that he basically got clean for the band and for uh. his girlfriend who is the other part of the band. And so like he immediately contacts his sponsor and he's like, What do I do? And the sponsor finds him a place that is for hearing impaired folks, for deaf folks, that is also about uh, being sober. It's like a sober colony for people who are uh, hearing, hearing impaired. impaired, mostly deaf, some you know less, less fully deaf. Uh, it is very good. I don't so here's the thing. I don't know how authentic it is to the deaf experience. Um, I'm not an expert on these things. I will say that there are a number of actors in the film who are themselves hearing impaired. Uh, one of which is a guy named uh, Paul Ratchie, who uh, he actually uh, is not hearing impaired himself, but he's a famous advocate for uh, ASL. He is actually the hearing child of deaf parents, so he learned ASL because of his parents. And he has been a big advocate for ASL. And he has acted in other things, but he's more known for his advocacy. Uh, And then there's a number of other actors in it who are hearing impaired. So I'm assuming their participation means at least some part of it is accurate. I can't speak to that. I will say for those of you watching it who are looking for an accurate portrayal of what it's like to be in music, it's kind of a mixed bag. On one hand, I don't know anyone who's playing shows that regularly who has no community at all. Like These people Mm. are an island. And so even though the shows that they're playing are clearly DIY shows, they have no one to reach out to anywhere in the country. It seems weird to me. I don't know what music scene is that isolated. On the other hand, do we all know people who if they suddenly went deaf, their whole life would fall apart because their music is everything and they have no other real life. That felt painfully Very accurate. real, yeah. And it felt so accurate that I felt a lot of anxiety <laughs> watching it. Um, but the film doesn't focus in just on his anxiety. It's about him growing and changing. It's about him learning about this world. And it's about him... Um, thinking about his sobriety. And I think it was the sobriety aspect that was interesting to me because it became really clear that it was about what it means to be going through sobriety when you have an anchor like a relationship. You know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Like so much of his sobriety is tied up in this relationship. So he has to negotiate that as well. And I found that aspect of it really interesting for me. You know, now I, you know, as listeners know, I'm straight edge, so that's not something I've had to deal with directly, but I've had friends who've gone through the program and um, seeing that part of it, that all felt very real and very powerful. So uh, it's a little melodramatic, I'll admit, uh, but I think uh, Riz Ahmed gives an amazing performance. I think Olivia Cook, as the, his partner, gives an amazing performance. Uh, and um, I don't know how to say his name. Matthew Amalric is a French actor who you've definitely seen in things before, uh, oftentimes playing villains, but uh, he's played other things as well. I think he's great. I love him. So, yeah, it's really good. I'm glad I saw it. I also saw a movie called Night of the Kings. It's a movie that was set in and was filmed in uh, the Ivory Coast. And uh, it's basically about a, a new prisoner in a sort of high-security prison And this prison kind of has its own culture and its own cultural practices. And one of those is that the prisoners elect, maybe they don't elect, but they they sort of choose and lift up uh, a guy who's like functionally their king. And this this 
prisoner has so much power over the other prisoners that they're almost not quite equal with, but they have sway over the warden because at just a word, they could make the prison turn into chaos. So um, this prisoner shows up and there's this aging uh, king, basically, of the prison. They use a different word for it, but that's functionally what they are. And um, the king decides, you know, he's at a point where he should be stepping down, basically. He's he's old, he's sick, and the tradition is when you got, get to a certain age, and this is kind of crazy, but you get to a certain age, you basically kill yourself. You just, like, wander off and die alone, uh, and mm. then the prisoners choose a new king, and this guy just doesn't want to do that. And so he decides to enact a tradition where he picks a storyteller, and the storyteller tells stories to the whole... Uh, prison, or at least this uh, uh, section of the prison, at night. Uh, now, as that goes forward, it becomes clear to that prisoner, who's basically the main character uh, and the audience, that when this is over, it's not going to go well for him. You know that this is going to end probably in his death, uh, and that that's the sort of final tradition of this particular tradition. And so he tells a bunch of stories about other prisoners and whatever. It's it's really powerful. It's interesting. It's a it's an interesting exploration of the idea that um, that a vacuum of power will always be filled. It's an interesting exploration around uh, criminality and myth making. Uh, it deals a lot with the political history of the Ivory Coast, but it also also mythologizes it a lot and sets a lot of more contemporary conflicts uh, in Ivory Coast politics in like ancient times. So like opposing politicians are, are sort of told in the stories as like, you know, kings and witches and things like that. So um, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's fun. It's dark, but it's fun. It has some truly amazing performances by actors who... I don't necessarily know. I wish I knew more African actors. Uh, the one familiar face in it, uh, Dennis Levant, uh, who you may know from Holy Motors. Mm. He plays the one white prisoner in the entire prison, <laughs> which they treat him just as a crazy dude that they don't fuck with. Well, they kind of mess, like bully him a little bit, but it, the general feeling is like the one white guy in the prison must be a crazy man because how did he end up in here with us? And it's really funny, actually. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a pretty moving film. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, I also watched a movie from Colombia uh, called Emma. Ah. That is a movie. Um, uh, it's basically about dance, but it's also about, um, I don't know, sort of uh, the complicated uh, gender dynamics in that particular culture. Um, it has Gael Garcia Bernal in it, um, as well as Mariana de Girolamo, uh, and then a few other people who I didn't recognize. Maybe people will know who they are, but I, I haven't seen them in anything else. Um, and basically, this uh, it, it's kind of a upsetting story. This young woman and her older husband, who is her choreographer, they adopt a child, and um, a series of a series of uh, very bad things happen around this adopted child such that they eventually, you know, basically give him back in a way. Whoa. And the film, 
jumps around through different scenarios and time periods and doesn't give you the full story. You have to piece it together through conversations and other things that are going on. And it becomes clear about midway through the movie that Emma has a plan because people have so turned on her uh, because of this idea that she couldn't mother this child and she clearly regrets how the child was treated despite the severity of the interactions. And so she's come up with this insane plan, truly manipulative and psychotic to change her circumstances. Um, And I loved it. I thought it was really powerful, uh, very moving. I love films about dance and the dance in it is really, really intense. I think if you're someone for whom you want a film to have a clear moral message, this is not going to work for you. Um, (laughs) Does Gail Garcia Bernal dance in this movie? Uh, uh, no, he's more of a choreographer. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, this is a movie where there are no heroes. Like, everyone is the bad guy, and yet everyone is compelling and endearing. So it's sort of like, <laughs> it's like a movie filled with anti-heroes who you find interesting. Um, and the morality of the film is very twisted, but it's also about, um this feeling of being trapped and trying to find your own way. And I found it really compelling. So I I would definitely recommend it. Uh, The last one I watched is a movie called Herself from Ireland. That is a kind of basic, kind of straightforward, but a very compelling narrative about intimate partner violence and a woman trying to kind of like establish herself in a complicated bureaucratic system while she gets away from her abusive husband. Um, it is a big old trigger warning for anyone who has a history of uh, intimate partner violence or any sort of family abuse. Uh, this is going to set that off for you, so I would not <laughs> recommend it. Um, I don't think there's anything in the film that that's exploitative. It's, in fact, a very sort of classy drama, but it is emotionally real, and I think the reality of the emotions it deals with could be very upsetting if you mm-hmm. aren't prepared for it. Uh, that being said, like I said, it's not exploitative at all. It's very empowering. It's just realistic, and the reality is, uh, even in Ireland, as, as everywhere, uh, women who undergo abuse uh, have a lot of bureaucracy to get through in order to have the freedom that they need. And it's it's dehumanizing. It's horribly mm. dehumanizing to have to go through the system. Um, but it, this particular film is very uplifting. It's again, it's probably, in, for some people, it's probably a little too close to like a, like a mainstream kind of family drama, you know? Mm. But I just found the portrayal of her PTSD and of a system that never tells her anything directly negative, but it never takes her as seriously as it should. Uh, those two things gave it a weight that I felt like it was more than just like a drama. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds intense. Yeah, it made it more. It made it more intimate. Uh, it definitely has a. It definitely has a sentimentality to it. It's not totally dark. It's it, mm. it has a little schmaltz, <laughs> which I think will be off-putting to some people. But as you know, Josh. Yeah. I like sentimental schmaltz. That's your thing. You know? Yep. I, I do don't know. always love it, but in this case, I liked it. And the fact that it was able to hit those notes of like togetherness while still being a very realistic portrayal of PTSD, it was just really powerful to me. So, uh, yeah, herself. So, those are the four things I got to watch for the Philly Film Fest. 
In theory, I'm going to review all four, but I've just had a tough time. I don't know about you guys, but I have a tough time doing anything productive right now. It's yeah, just really man. hard for me. It's to just a lot going on yeah. right now. Yeah, dude, totally take the time that you need, bro. Like, what are we supposed to do? It's just like watching the world fall apart. So, you know, you, you be nice to yourself. If you don't have the bandwidth to do it, then don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know, Josh, but I want to do it. I do. I really want to do it. Yeah. Okay. So, hey guys. So that was our whack it on track uh, on this episode. I guess we haven't talked about this yet. We're continuing our <laughs> ghost stories. Uh, the part six, two. Yeah, triple feature on this episode. We're going to be discussing uh, Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Yeah. The Legend of Hell House and uh, Kuroneko, a a uh, Criterion Channel uh, or Criterion Collection Japanese film. So. Yeah. Uh, those are our three films we'll be covering. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Justin. Uh, we are now about to embark <laughs> on a cinematic discussion of three more ghost stories, a theme that we started on Horror Business episode 88, where uh, we each chose two ghost movies for the Halloween season, and uh, everybody watched them, and now we're going to talk about them. So uh, the last episode, what did we talk about? We talked about The Others. We talked about um, uh-huh. Poltergeist, and we talked uh-huh. about Empire of Passion. So um, yep. this episode for Cinepunks, we'll be discussing Kuroneko, which is uh, 1968, directed by uh, Kaneto Shindo. And then we're talking about The Devil's Backbone by Guillermo del Toro. And um, who did who directed uh, Hell House, Haunting in Hell House? So, some guy. Legend of Hell House. Legend of Hell House, my bad. Wrong Hell House. Some fucking guy who's not Roddy McDowell or Richard Matheson, so fuck him. Okay, first of all, fuck you. It was directed by John uh, Hugh, or I don't know if it's John Hugh or John Ho, but uh, dude is fucking awesome. One of the great discoveries for me of us So awesome. Covering you this you film. don't even know how to pronounce his last name. You <laughs> called him a ho. Doesn't matter. The point is, my man directed, listen to this fucking lineup. Uh, Twins of Evil. Trash. Uh, Legend of Hell House. Trash. Uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. <laughs> Escape Trash. to Witch Mountain. Okay, are you being serious right now? Because I will cancel this podcast and our podcast forever. <laughs> if you Trash. Keep like Escape to Witch Mountain. Return from Witch Mountain. Amazing. Target, Disney movies. The Watcher in the Wood. <laughs> uh the Incubus, uh, Triumph of a Man Called Horse, mm, some of this later stuff I don't know. Oh, American Gothic. That's it. That's the last good thing. Okay. Some of this stuff might be good. I haven't seen it, though, so let's just say I haven't seen it. Right, uh, right, right. Dude's great. He's great. And Legend of Hell House is great. Yeah. So let's, Josh, Josh, yours uh, is chronologically first, so let's start there. Let's talk All about right. Kuroneko. Kuroneko. Me and Justin, I think, had never seen this before. Is that correct, Justin? That is correct. Wow. Yeah, this is like, I don't know if you, long-time listeners of the show will know, there was, a, there was a period of my time when I was completely obsessed with, like, Asian horror movies, and uh, I watched them all. You know what I mean? I, I've seen a lot that are, a lot of them are bad, a lot of them are good, but, like, uh, the older ones, like, the ones that are popping up on Criterion and stuff, those have always been kind of my favorite ones, you know what I mean? Like, House and... Uh, like the two that we watched for these two episodes. And Kuroneko is definitely one of my favorite ones. And um, yeah, I'm happy that you guys were, uh, were obliging me to watch this movie. It's about, um, so there's a bunch of uh, like, it's, it's around um, like early feudal, like Japan era. And there's like roving samurais that are just marauding around villages and stuff. And they end up finding a house. They're looking for food, and they find this house that has food, and it has these two women that they continue to rape and kill. And the story goes that um, suddenly these people start showing up, like samurai show up with their throats torn out, and it turns out that they're being murdered by the vengeful ghosts of the mother and daughter that were killed in this in this house that they find in the woods. And um, then there was the samurai Hachi, I think his name was, that's supposed to go and try and... Uh, for the shogunate, he is to go and, and find out why these people are dying. And, you know, there's a demon and all this other stuff. So, um, yeah. Kuroneko, Black Cat. I fucking love this movie. What do you yeah. guys think about it? This is your first time watch for both of you guys. So I'm actually really curious to hear what your thoughts are. 
on this movie? Um, so I'm not gonna lie, that opening was like kind of rough to watch. Yeah, it's um, grim. It, it's 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 it was a little too uh, grim. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Um, but you know, on the Harvest this episode we did on Empire of Passion, I talked about how that movie is like a very like. Uh, miserably horny film. This is more of like a like a tragically horny film. Yeah, um, I'd agree. But the thing that appealed to me the most about this was that like, if there was ever, if you could ever make a a noir film in feudal Japan, somehow this movie pulled that off. Like so much of this movie felt like something out of like like there was just something about the use of like light and shadow. Mm. reminded me so much of like a 50s or 60s like detective noir movie especially like that scene like kind of towards the beginning when the samurai is like riding by the rajamon gate mm. and then the woman like does the flip over him because they're like they're dressed in like these ghosts are dressed in white yeah. so there's this really stark contrast between these like deep pools of shadow and then there's like very focused areas of light and then you have these women who are wearing these white robes and it just stands out um and that's what stuck out the most for me. Uh, I, I, I thought it was like the, the whole idea at the end when, um, you know, basically this was like all for nothing. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was like a... There's a lot of times with, with films that end on such a note, there's like a touch of cruelty there where you're like, they didn't really need to do that. That was like, it, it was just a little... You know, we saw this movie that was like, you know, two hours of, of people dying. It opens up with this like horrific rape scene. It didn't need to end on, on such a weird, ambiguous, but undeniably tragic note. But I kind of like the fact that this is like, this came from a time when it was like the whole idea of like revenge gets you nowhere and it ultimately, ultimately leaves you with nothing. Uh, I really like that. Like, I, I really like that it ended in such a way where there was no happy ending and there was these people who strived for to gain vengeance and, and, and to, to avenge the wrongs in the world. It got them nowhere. Like yeah. I, I really, I mean, it's grim, but it's also like it was, it was earned. It wasn't just like, let's do this fucked up ending just to be fucked up. It was, yeah. you know, the whole thing like where he, you know, where, um, what's his, his real, yeah, Hachi, his real name is Hachi. Uh, when he realizes what's going on um and then the, just that fucking ending where he goes back to the house where all this yeah. happened at and it's just like it, it kind of goes back to the way it was when he found it it's just such a like a grim and heartless but 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 not cruel ending and i i really appreciated that yeah i mean that's the beauty of these kinds of horror movies right like even in Empire of Passion, there's these like elements of um, etherealness to these movies, and like the, the visual style definitely lends itself to that. But also, there's there's no sugarcoat. You know what I mean? Like no. these things display these horrific. Like, I mean, even in the context of a ghost story, uh, where these fantastic things are happening, it's it's very human and very concrete. Come the end, you know what I mean? And like like yeah. you're saying, like the fact that there these, there's this like futility of effort. And that, you know, that evil begets evil. It's just, it's so grim, but like you said, earned. I love, I love that about this kind of horror movie 
What do you think, Liam? I mean, first off, it is a, a really visually stunning movie. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love black and white movies, so, um, but I love black and white movies visually. And then I have mixed feelings sometimes on older films. Now, granted, 1968 is not that old. That's kind of actually in my sweet spot. Mm-hmm. But it, this very easily could have been a film where it didn't have momentum, that it had a lot of like speeches and weird whatever. Mm-hmm. But this thing kind of moves at every moment. I never felt bored. I never felt like, why is this happening? Like, I'm in from the first moment. I will say... I was very surprised that you chose this film because we've talked on this show many times about your uncomfortable feelings around rape scenes. And so uh, I got to echo Justin. That beginning is is pretty grim. Yeah, it's Um, fucked up. I think in that sense, that part, and then sort of as the rest of the film unfolds, I kind of wonder if there's some like, political stuff going on here like 1968 we've come out of uh world war ii and by 1968 there was already parties in japan that were like hey guys remember the emperor maybe we should do that again which is by the way crazy but it's worth keeping in mind like the specter of fascism never goes away right so uh it's not that big a surprise that it took you know uh just about 20 years or so or maybe a little more for people to all of a sudden be uh nostalgic for something that was probably a bad idea in the first place but for this film to be so clearly about how uh bureaucracy and power doesn't give a fuck about you and that's not just true of the general or the emperor or these samurai who basically walk around as a higher class of people who get to do whatever they want just because mm-hmm. they kill folks, you know? Yeah. Um, it's also true of the supernatural, that the commitment that his wife and mother made when they died to be vengeful spirits, you can't go back on that. You now owe a debt to whatever forces are behind the veil. And... That, that there's actually a system of weights and measures that his wife trades her uh, afterlife so that she can have a week of sweet lovemaking with her husband. <laughs> it furthers this feeling in the movie that like systems, uh, bureaucracies, both on this earth and in the next world, simply exist to crush poor people. You know, that simply exists to take bare human life and make it worse in every possible way. I mean, what is the war that they're fighting even about that that ends up in the brutal uh, rape and murder murder of these women? We we never know. There's just a rebellion of some kind. Yeah, there's something that they have to fight. Yeah, it's crazy. And so, like all of that, that all of that intrigue, and you could be distracted a bit by the intrigue of it all, by the kind of you know melodrama of it turning out to be his wife and mother, or the commitment he's made to this general. All of that could distract you, but I think the underlying thing of this that that there are forces aligned against him just living a normal life, him sort of surviving against his uh, his now dead family making the decisions that they might want to make. This whole, there there is a certain kind of grim hopelessness to that, but it is very earned. And it is a feeling that like, I don't think is unjustified. You know, it didn't end and I thought, oh, what a mean movie. I mean, this is what Justin basically said, right? Uh-huh. It ends in a way that is very bleak, 
but it is a bleakness that feels earned and it doesn't feel like oh yeah and then would uh, you know it, there's no edge lordness to it regardless of the time period it came out in mm. um, it feels very much like almost like a timeless myth right like you could have told someone a shorter like fairy tale version of this same narrative and i'd believe you that it was like a a story handed down over time you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah, feels yeah. It, it it feels like the natural extension of the story they started to tell as opposed to how can we make the story more fucked up? Like, when you're telling a story about vengeance, when, when someone goes out on a mission of vengeance, it typically doesn't end well for them, even if it technically ends well for them. Like, even if you kill every single person who's wronged you, you still have some weight to bear. Yeah. And I think that's what this is. This, this is just kind of like, it's like, in this story, like B follows A, C follows B, D follows C, E follows D, F follows E, G is her rocketing through the ceiling, and then him coming back to the place where it all started. Like, I don't know. There, you're 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 right. It does have like a classically allegorical feel to it. Um, and I think when I was reading up on this, I think this is like a, this is a a version of 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 a, of a folk of a folk tale, like a Japanese folk tale. So maybe that's why it has that like that rhythm to it, of like a, like a like an allegory. Right, right. Yeah, I'm glad you guys liked it, man. I mean, again, I hope that I hope that this is like a, a doorway for you guys to go further into like the Japanese bag, especially what's in the Criterion Collection, because I know Quaidan is on there. There's a bunch of other ones that are on there that I think are pretty cool, and um, yeah, man, this stuff is awesome. Like you wouldn't have. Like the Ryuei Kitamura movies, you wouldn't have like all the stuff that's like popular now without these foundational Asian horror movies. And um, yeah, I think they're great, man. Thank you guys for watching this. Yeah, one. I I really liked it. I think uh, you know, I think the criticism whenever we're talking about horror, part of the question is always going to be like, is is the thing like scary? Um, and I think this is like a great example of something that is not necessarily like scary in a traditional sense, but it's definitely unsettling and yeah. it's definitely left me with some very haunting imagery. And as we've discussed before, there's a little bit of a cultural difference here. Like there, there are some anxieties around death and the dead that are more prevalent in Japanese culture than they are here. So some of these things might be a little more upsetting uh, in a different context, but I don't think the movie doesn't translate. I think it translates really well. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen, I've gotten to see Quaidon. I, I think I like that a little bit more, mm. but I, I do like this a lot. And I like that. It's part of a tradition of films. I, you could do a whole, um, film fest of movies called, uh, black cat. And I kind of love that actually. So, you know, go ahead and throw this one into the pile of, uh, really compelling, uh, black cat movies. I, I thought it was really, really good. And for me, one of the things I really liked about it is this kind of, um, Japanese mythology around ghosts and how ghosts function and when they when they sort of transform into these kind of like cat like people to murder the samurai that was that was kind of badass honestly like each time there's like a whole series of murders that they commit it, it's very good it's very very yeah. good so it it successfully does what a horror movie should do in, in that it establishes this feeling of even when things are just in broad daylight uh there's still this sense of 
wrongness there, of otherness, of of, of dread. Um, and that's really all you can, I mean, even if it's not out and out scary, that's all you can really, like, as long as it establishes that atmosphere, you know, we've talked about it on hard business, like, even if there's no payoff, as long as it sets that tone successfully and makes you feel like something scary could happen that, you know, that's, that's all, that's all you should really expect from a horror film. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I thought it was really good. Let's talk about Legend of Hell House. So... Oh yeah, that's what we were talking about. Sorry, 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 sorry. My bad. Have you actually lost track? What the fuck? Oh yeah, no, I almost had a meltdown and a heart attack at the same time when the computer laughed at me and gave me the finger. So you know, you can tell the technical you can, issue. You can tell that for a good chunk of our episodes, only one of us was carrying the anxiety of all the technology that often didn't work. Like, remember all those ones we did where we'd have all those fucking USB mics plugged into one laptop? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were great. Those were so much fun. I thought when we first started, we just had that one recorder given to us by a friend of the show, John Paul Golaski, just sitting between the two of us at the table at your kitchen. You're so wrong. That recorder we almost never used. The recorder you're thinking of was my stepdad, George's. Oh, wait. Yeah, that one. The recorder, no, still, the recorder that the John H6, Paul gave us, H- uh, H4, H6 is the one that I have H4. now. H4. Yeah, yeah. The one that yeah, John yeah, Paul yeah. gave us is the one that uh, John Wren stole. Yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. Great recorder. Yeah. But there was a time when that's all we had. It's true. And it's it true. Dope. And now look at us. We've advanced so far. So uh, for those of you who've never seen uh, Legend of Hell House from 1973, directed by, again, John Hugh, John Ho, I don't know how you pronounce it, and I don't care. But uh, uh, <laughs> film stars Pamela Franklin, Roddy McDowell, Clive Revel, Gail Honeycutt, uh, Roland Culver. Uh, it, you know, this is kind of, I don't know if you would say Hang on a second. What's it, ba- w- w- what's it based on? It's based on the novel by Richard, Richard Matheson, Matheson, right? I'm going to write Richard Matheson. The OG. And he wrote the screenplay. The OG Richard Matheson. I mean, <laughs> look, I respect Richard Matheson. I think I actually, uh, before I left the Easton Library, I actually bought their hardcover version of this book, which I have not gotten to read yet, but it's in my collection. So I will read it sometime soon. But this movie, um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it's basically about a house that is so haunted that attempts in the past to study its hauntedness have resulted in uh, death and madness. And so a new team of researchers is put together to investigate the haunted nature of said house. Uh, We've got two different kinds of psychics, one of which was present at uh, the last time people went and tried to study the house and people died, and a scientist who's developed a uh, process for clearing a house of hauntedness uh, based upon a theory that uh, haunting phenomena are caused by uh, energy. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of weird pseudoscience stuff. But basically, uh, the film has this almost like heist feel of like getting the team together, going to the location, all the different elements. And then um, as opposed to like a very clear forward narrative, it has a bunch of set pieces that it kind of ties together with different timestamps. So it's like we've moved forward a little bit and then here's a new event that happens. Um, all of which sort of culminating into uh, 
utter chaos and insanity um, as we learn more about the history of the house and as uh, our man Roddy McDowell uh, goes from kind of the loser of the group to the hero of the group, in my mind. Um, have have yeah. either one of you seen this film before? I had never seen this before. Uh, you picked it for us to watch it, and I love it. I had never Justin, seen how it. How about you? I, I've never seen it before, no. Uh, well, Josh, you said you loved it. Talk about it. What did you love about the film? Uh, it's funny because it's another one of these like weird movies that's like secretly horny. Like I didn't know if it was going to be <laughs> weird. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's that kind of movie. And then like, there's just so many. I mean, seeing seeing our man Ryan McDowell in there, who you know, like it's. I love seeing like actors that we know as older actors. You know what I mean? Like seeing him in Right Night and Overboard, like all those movies, and then seeing him as a young man in this movie. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just, I love, like, if you watch uh, Lifeboat, you see a young human Cronin in that movie. Uh, like, I like seeing actors that I know as older actors in their younger ages. You know what I mean? Like, an- another actor in Lifeboat is Tallulah Bankhead, who, before Lifeboat, I had only seen her in Die Down My Darling, when she was old already, you know, or at least playing an old person. I thought she was old in that movie. But, um, yeah, so, like, this movie is super fun, and it's, like, Creepy in all the right, like, weird Britannica kind of ways, which I'm completely obsessed with to begin with. And um, I really had a lot of fun with this movie. And, like, the whole, like, pseudoscience stuff with, like, the whole energy reading and all that, I thought that was really, really fun. The whole secret back room with the... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Love that shit, dude. I love that kind of stuff. Like, I love secret room, like, dead guy stuff. That shit is so cool to me. And um, this movie definitely just hit all those notes. Like, I thought it was really, really fun. And uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. Justin, what did you think of The Legend of Hell House? Um, I wasn't crazy about this movie, but I, I don't say that in a way of, like, a veiled, like, padded, I didn't like it. Like, I, I liked it, but it didn't, like, grab me the way that I, I, I thought it was going to. Um, I don't want to talk about what I thought was, like, sort of flat about it. What I really liked about this movie is that um, it was kind of the precursor to the um, to Ghostbusters in that they present they they really try to present like um, paranormal phenomenon as a quantifiable scientific phenomenon. And because, you know, he's got this we have this machine that measures electromagnetic energy and the blah, blah. And it's, it's based on this like positronic brain bullshit, which is basically what they what they would do uh, 20 years later with Ghostbusters. Um, but one thing I kept like thinking about when I was watching this movie is that this film could really benefit from. From a remake. Um, mm. Like. I, I think this movie would be an excellent candidate for like the whole like Mike Flanagan, the haunting of such and such. Uh, if if mm-hmm. only because the thing that I was like, I was really hoping they would talk about more and they would really show more is how they make it clear that like Roddy McDowell's character was in this house before with other people and they mm-hmm. all fucking died. And he was the only one who got out. Like that is such a weirdly violent aspect for like a 60s like for like a like a 60s haunted house movie like i want to know more about that expedition i want to know how they went in there i want to know like you know what went down how they all how died, they all died. Yeah. 
all that. I mean, I, I mean, what this this movie was this movie was fine. Um, I, I didn't dislike it by any by any stretch, but it, it definitely was. I, I think it's maybe on me because I was I was expecting a little bit more. Um, the one thing I really did like was at the end though when like Roddy McDowell is like facing down Belasco's ghost, and he's basically like telling him like, uh, like he's this like wiener. Like he's such a wiener in this movie. He's got the yeah. He's, he's dark, such a yeah. fucking wiener. He's like he he really is like Burgess Meredith in that Twilight Zone episode with the glasses, and he's just like yelling at this ghost, who for all they know is a serial killer and whose nickname was like the Mad Giant or whatever. And he's like, "You were not even five two, and your mother was a whore." And he's yelling this shit, and all this bad stuff is happening, and then they just. You know, th- that that's the whole, like, they really lean into the idea that, like, that these ghosts are, like, this energy that's, like, stuck here because they're unsatisfied with life or whatever. And then turns out that they find out that this dude was, like, wholly insecure in his, in his appearance when they find the secret lead-lined room with his, his uh, what was his, he, he had, like, prosthetic legs or some shit like that to make Yeah, leg- he had his actual yeah, yeah, legs yeah, yeah, removed yeah. and he wore prosthetic legs. That's such a weird fascinating like aspect to a story that they didn't need to include at all. Like they didn't need to, they didn't need to touch upon this guy's insecurities about his, his physical ex- uh, appearance. You know what I mean? Like they could have just been like, yeah, he was an asshole who killed people. Instead. They're like, Oh no, he was this guy who had this whole host of like weird issues about self image and whatnot. Um, so I thought, I, I thought that was really cool that they added this like kind of detailed backstory to a character that they didn't necessarily need to. I just thought that was like an interesting choice. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think that's an interesting. Well, and I, I mean, I I think they did in the sense that um, they wanted to peel back a little bit of the curtain of like who he is, you know. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. for Matheson, who based a lot of the stuff in the novel on Aleister Crowley, I think it was designed to fuck with Aleister Crowley. I didn't, I, th- I think this is, <laughs> I, I legitimately think he thinks Aleister Crowley was an asshole who manipulated people. And that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of the, the point. Um, I also think it's interesting that, um, there's a lot more graphic violence and sex in the book than there is in the movie. Usually you spice up your script for, for the movie, and my man toned it down because he just thought it was too much, <laughs> and he wanted it to be more of a brooding, atmospheric film. I think that's an interesting choice. Uh, I would like to see yeah. uh, a film, much like you said, Justin, I, I would be into a remake of this that had a a, a bit of a more faithful take on the book. Um, again, not that this is unfaithful. Richard Matheson wrote the screenplay. But the fact that he decided, you know, the book's a little too much for audiences. I'm going to change it a little bit. I think a modern audience might appreciate some of those elements. That being said, uh, this is a top five sp- spooky movie for me when it comes to haunted house films. I think part of that is the pacing and the kind of... Uh, Again, the kind of heist movie-ness of it, you know, like we're getting the team together. We're going to go to the spooky house. It's going to be great. Uh, I love that. I love that aspect of the movie. Yeah, it moves so quickly, mm-hmm. too, from like the concept of the old guy being like, I need you to go to this house. Like, and then they're there. You know what I mean? Like, it moves like at such a pace, especially at the beginning. That it's awesome. It really does. Despite moving so quickly, it sets a stage with a with a certain aura yeah. that just carries the whole movie that I... 
cool. And I liked I love I like the mixed motivations. You know what I mean? That like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Fisher's just there to get a check and hopefully not to die. Uh, you know, Florence <laughs> is there. She has a point to make. Uh, Dr. Barrett has a point to make, you know, and those points don't mm-hmm. coincide. Like they're at odds with each other. I kind of like that too. You know, I like the idea of the different kinds of mediums that are there. Like I like that part of it. I love that Florence, uh, like I said, played by Pamela Franklin, she has an outfit change every 10 minutes. Like literally (laughs) in each scene, she's got a different fabulous outfit on. I fucking love that. I think that's great. Um, I, I will say the horny ghost aspect of this whole thing is weird to me. I've never quite understood horny ghosts, whether it's this movie or the entity or that woman who appeared on British reality TV to say that she fucks a ghost. I don't know if you guys remember that. It went viral. <laughs> she was on like a talk show and she's like, I love him. He fucks me. And you're like, it's a ghost. What, what the fuck? Um, I don't, I don't quite get that whole horny ghost thing. Uh, but that being said, I think it works in the movie and it does add a little bit of menace. I think it's interesting to know that the original book had more horny ghosts. So I'm kind of like, what the <laughs> fuck is that about? Um, and I kind of like the idea that this is a mystery, right? That they're trying to figure something out. Um, and part of that is the nature of this haunting, but that's also tied to like real world events. I like all of that. Um, so for me, this one really works. I think uh, it's definitely has a bit of like a hammer horror feel in that there's a bit of like a British corniness to it, you know? So for someone who mm-hmm. prefers a bit more edge to their movies, um, other than the horniness, there's not a lot of edge to this movie. Um, that being said, uh, our, our, our man here, uh, Ho or Hugh, however you pronounce his name, um, he's made two horny supernatural films, uh, this and uh, The Incubus. And I think one of his other ones is a little horny too. So I don't know if he's got a thing for horny ghosts, but uh, <laughs> but, I, but I will say like it's interesting to see this movie and some of the other movies he's made and know that he also did Witch Mountain. You know what I mean? Like, and Escape from Witch and Return to Witch Mountain. Yeah, like that's kind of crazy. I mean, he yeah. did multiple of these kind of iconic spooky Disney movies that like people still remember. Yeah. Um, so th- th- that's interesting to me too. Uh, I think I really want to read the Matheson novel. Um, so I don't know if that's a compliment to the film or not that I want to go back to the source material. But, uh, but for me, uh, you know, I think like you were saying, Josh, there's something about young Roddy McDowell in this and yeah, he is a wiener, mm. but, <laughs> but his wienerness makes sense, right? Everyone yeah, in the he, last expedition, I think, I think that he was a part of. Yeah, I think they all died. I don't know if they all died. I think one was paralyzed and is in a mental hospital. I think either way, that. either way, yeah. they're dead but or they're fucking crazy. Everyone is fucked except for him. So the yeah. fact that he's like, "All right, guys, I don't really want to be involved. I just want to get my check and go home." I, you know, I, I think you're supposed to judge him a little bit for that, and I guess I do a teeny bit. But part of me is like. I don't know, y'all. I think Roddy McDowell's got the right idea. I guess my thing is, I don't know why we fuck with ghosts in the first place if they are real. You know, like I, as I said on our other episode, I don't actually believe in ghosts. But if I did, I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, let's go fuck with some ghosts. Like that sounds like a good. It's time. it's <laughs> never a good idea. It's no, it, especially like okay, it, on a base level, like if there was like a hotel in Easton that were like, oh yeah, there are ghosts there, I'd be like, I, I'll take your word for it. 
But if you were like, there's a hotel in Easton where 20 years ago they sent an expedition there and everyone died, except for two people. One of them became a wiener and the other one is catonic <laughs> in a hospital somewhere. I wouldn't be like, I better check that out for myself. You know, like, fun. Like, I, I would be like, yeah, let's put that wiener down. Exactly. Like, ghosts, ghosts, period, are frightening. Like, I, uh, the idea of any ghost is fucking terrifying to me. But they're not real. Like the idea, I also like the idea that in this movie, that and, and you're right, this does play over into Ghostbusters, that a straight-up real-ass physicist is like, yeah, deal with ghost shit. I mean, yeah. I don't believe they're literal <laughs> ghosts. I believe some other energy bullshit. But I'm a physicist. I'm a real-ass physicist. I, that, that's not real, right? Are there real-ass physicists going around trying to invent electromagnetic I ghost have some very. Systems? I have some very... I 100%. I have some very. I don't know. I have some good news for you, Josh, and I have some very bad news for you, Liam. (laughs) Oh, shit. Yes. (laughs) Yes. If you've ever read the book, The Entity, that the movie is based on, holy God in heaven, the fucking positron brain Egon Spangler bullshit they go into in that book is fucking mind numbing. I will say, we've talked. Happy or unhappy, Justin? Like, is that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, if ghosts are real, big if, that's my thing, because if they're bad, we have a way to protect ourselves. But the fact that these people are obviously like, like no matter what, these people are obviously very intelligent. The fact that that intelligence is being wasted on ghosts is just, <laughs> it seems like like immoral to me. Like in a very broad <laughs> manner of speaking, it seems like you could be curing uh, like cancer, or you could be making dogs live longer than 12 years. Instead, you're like, but what about ghosts? Like, what practical application does it have? <laughs> I think that's fair. That's a fair question. Um, I, I appreciate that this movie also is kind of along the lines of even though there's no there's no straight up skeptical character here because our one skeptical dude is still a physicist who studies ghosts so even though he doesn't believe they're literal ghosts he's still like in it however the underlying feeling of the film is that here we have three four maybe believers and these believers are still um haughty enough to take on this house i think there's still this underlying anxiety here that we see in a lot of these movies around modernity right like oh we'll just go into Mm -hmm. this place that everyone knows is dangerous but because we're modern people with modern things we'll be fine and it's like nah dog like uh, even if they're doing this thing right why not bring a hundred people into the fucking house? You know what I mean? Like if yeah, and a bunch of lights, yeah, a million lights, and all the camera. Like, so many. The lights. idea that yeah. like we just need this small, compact team to take on this apparently murderous domicile is like what the fuck is going on? But it is partly, I think, that thing that we've talked about a lot on Horror Business and some on this show too. That like these movies are about how there might be something that we are disconnected from and it's going to get us in the end. It's this weird anxiety that these films have that like, there's something there in the dark. There's something there Mm -hmm. that we are as modern people not connected to anymore. And there's going to be a price to pay. And I find that that anxiety 
almost more superstitious than actual superstitious people. You know, it's like oh, this, yeah. <laughs> this, this whole thing about, you know, maybe we're not as smart as we think we are. And it's really compelling yeah. in a way. And I think it's, it's present in this movie, I think in a really fun, weird way. No, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's the same thing that's in uh, Prince of Darkness that's in this movie that we have this team of scientists and we're going to be better than like this weird haunted thing. I love that. Well, I mean, it's also the weird defined, like, I, I mean, I think I've brought it up before, but one of the really cool things I loved about dog soldiers is there's the scene where the one soldier is talking to like the woman that rescues them. And they're having this like sort of heart to heart. Like we're probably going to be dead by the time the sun comes up because of werewolves. And he's talking about like moving on with his life. And she's just like moving on with your life. Like, you know what is out there in the dark now. Like you can't move on with your life. And I think that's that's what's in with a, like a lot of these movies is that taps into that fear of like um, it doesn't leave you untouched. It's like even if you survive an experience like this, you're gonna go through your life every day being like, yeah, and there are ghosts. <laughs> You know, like it, it's a it's it's such a primitively shitty feeling that this movie really does kind of like lay on the line. Like, but by having Roddy McDowell be the hero, it does give a brief bit of hope. Like, you know, he's been traumatized by this house as much as anyone else, and yeah. the fact that he, the now. fact that at the end he's yelling basically at his abuser, "You're not even a real man, you fuck," is like kind of cool and it's kind of a weird response to trauma but i think it yeah. kind of works in the context of the film absolutely yeah yeah i mean basically that's what this story is about right a manipulative bully who punished mm. people because he felt insecure about who he was as a man who has extended his bullying and 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 horrible practices past his death and, and he did it yeah. On purpose, full on was like, I'm gonna fuck these fuckers after I'm dead. Oh my god, the the level of resentment involved in that. But some part of it feels realistic because um, that's what toxic masculinity is, right? Yeah, <laughs> like that's in the end kind of what this movie is about. Hence, why I think the sexy, the, I say sexy, that's not even fair. The rapey ghost feel of the whole thing works because. This ghost is about uh, the flaccid cock, right? The toxic masculinity, the need to prove what a man you are is at the sort of core of this ghost story. And so the idea that the ghost is uh, not mildly, extremely rapey is like 100% makes sense for who the character is. And also, again, is a real fuck you to Aleister Crowley, right? Yeah, yeah. Man, love it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our, our next film. Justin, what, what was the film that you chose? I chose uh, 2001's gothic horror film, El Espinazo del Diablo, directed by Guillermo del Toro, known in America and white people as The Devil's Backbone. <laughs> uh, Josh, had you seen this before? I have, and I love this movie. Yeah. I loved it on this viewing every single bit as much as I loved it on the first time I saw it. And every time I've seen it after, I adore this movie. It's, it, it's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. It's just so beautifully told, and it's like, oh, man, like this is like the one movie that made me fall in love with Del Toro in a way that like allowed me to really give a, a like a chance to like his other movies you know what i mean like this movie right here 
like before all the hoopla of like all like the big budget movies that he did, like this movie. And um, what was the other one with that? With uh, Chronos, Chronos right? yeah. Was that the other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love these movies so much, and this movie in particular is so beautiful to me. Like I love it. Uh, it's one of the movies that made me be able to watch Pan's Labyrinth without feeling like, eh, I'm not really into it. Like, I love Guillermo del Toro for the most part. And this movie is one of the reasons why. I think that this movie weirdly embodies his obsession with um, the Spanish Civil War and fairy tales right. mm. more than any, including Pan's Labyrinth. Like, somehow this, yeah. somehow this movie feels more like a fairy tale than Pan's Labyrinth does. And that that and it's all through like it's all just the storytelling. It's it's all just the way the story unfolds that it feels more like this like happily ever after movie or style story than like Pan's Labyrinth or even like the second Hellboy where he really leaned into the fantasy element of it. Um, mm. But God damn, what a fucking movie this is. Right. Yeah, let's 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 right. let's not forget that. It, 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 it's set against the backdrop of the of the of the Spanish Civil War, but it also shows how how heartless that war is because a main plot point that kind of gets like in the background is the Nationalists tried to bomb an orphanage, <laughs> like they they yeah. tried to blow up an orphanage. That's so incredibly dark that it it it. it I think that darkness sort of like lingers over this movie, and it's not like overtly dark, but it's still there. And it, I just like only Del Toro could do that. Only Del Toro could use like those elements to bring about to to, to create this mood of just uh, of of just uh, melancholy and 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 horror, like actual real world horror. Yeah, I, it's beautiful. I think it's interesting too because while uh, it has the same sort of basic context as Pan's Labyrinth, I think it is in a way, more about the human condition uh, than Pan's Labyrinth. Um, I think Pan's Labyrinth, though also a movie that I very much love, um, it deals a, a bit more directly with fascism in some ways. Uh, it's also about identity and about uh, the story of, of the main character. But uh, this movie, it, 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 it doesn't go out of its way to valorize the... Um, Sort of uh, Republican forces, you know the 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 people against Franco. Um, you know they they're the ones leaving their kids here to fight this battle, so it it doesn't go out of its way to like make them seem overly heroic, but it's a reminder that um, you know uh, uh, greed and fear and a need to belong. And you know, just the 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 ways that pain can cause us to hurt others. Uh, all these things are related uh, to this story, and that they continue on outside of these kind of political uh, conflicts, even if they're also embodied in them. And I think there's something like very kind of powerful about that, while still sort of uh, doing the thing that I want Guillermo del Toro to do, which he assumes his audience is also not on the side of Franco. And it is, um, it's great. I think it's, you know, it's very helpful that he's chosen a side when, you know, historically speaking, it's not clear that uh, uh, P- 
people in the West are all of one mind as to who the hero of that conflict was, per se. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. even though he doesn't sort of um, candy coat the other side, you know, like, it's not great that we're in a situation where these kids have to be left at this orphanage because of the whatever. It's, But it's also very clear that that um, these people are the sympathetic people and the nationalists mm. that we all know that they're monsters, right? <laughs> well, that's you know that's a decision he's making, um, and 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 it it doesn't keep him from being able to tell a very universal story, I think, and one that it, you know unfolds very well. I kind of had the opposite experience watching rewatching this that I had with the others. You know, my my issue mm. if, for for those of you who haven't listened to the Harbus's episode, which we recommend you do, uh, I felt like going back to the others, there wasn't as much there as I remembered. It, it felt a little empty. Uh, what I find with mm. Devil's Backbone, and this is the third time I've watched it, um, there's more there every time I go back. There's more to think about. Yeah. Because you have the dynamics of the kids. You have the dynamics of the monstrous uh, guy who works there. You have the dynamics of mm. our older characters and the social dynamics they're in. You have this idea of this, um, you know, this specter who's forced to haunt. And, and, and kind of a theme with Del Toro is like often the things that frighten us are not the things we should be scared of. Um yeah. I love how all of those sort of interplay in this film. And I think on every watch, I've been more impressed with how balanced the movie it is and how compelling it is from the beginning to the end. There's no point. Mm. There's no down point. There's no like, it, it, I wouldn't say it's an adrenaline rush per se, though parts of it are fucking terrifying. Um, mm. it, but it, it never stops. It goes forward and it's compelling the entire time. I think probably one of the most compelling decisions that Del Toro takes with this movie is just throwing it through the perspective of a new coming orphan. Right. And, and, and like, it's just such like a deft way to navigate these like things that everybody's supposed to know about going into, but still making it new. And that's what makes the, the scary bits so scary because of the innocence from which the viewer is asked to participate in the movie. And it's such a masterful way to tell the story. I love it so much. I mean, I think that's what sets it apart from a movie like Crimson Peak, which kind of has the same, like, I mean, told in a different context, but it still has the same, like, long-reaching ghost thing going on, right? Like, this, like, implications of what's going on. And um, that movie doesn't have this kind of innocence behind it. And that's what makes this movie more effective in my mind. Which, you know, I love Crimson Peak, so, you know, whatever. But, like, this movie is definitely more my favorite of the two hmm. because of that commitment to the innocence. I think that I, I mean, I also love Crimson Peak. I think Crimson Peak though is definitely um, visually stunning in a way that mm. uh, is a lot about some very, I think impressive CGI work, which you don't hear me praising a lot of CGI, but I think the, the work in that movie is truly impressive, but there is something about this film not using a lot of special effects. I mean, there's definitely some in the film, but it does a lot. Oh yeah. But it does a lot, a lot with just, you know, uh, a good eye and a, and a great Mm. uh, setting, you know, uh, without relying too much on special effects. And again, that's nothing against special effects, but um, Crimson Peak seems a lot more showy in that way. uh, And and that doesn't make Mm. it bad, but it's certainly a different kind of movie. 
Now, this yeah. this this movie I think is a lot more subdued in how um, its depiction of the ghostly is the way that a ghost should be depicted, um, recognizable as a human being, but also inhuman. I love the little touch of just the blood floating upwards from the head wound. That yeah. that mm. that that is such a tiny visual aspect of this movie that just lets you know like this is the other you know it, it you know yeah. that's that's what really i mean yeah the, the eyes are spooky and he's he's pale and whatever but like it, it it's it's the blood leaking upward from the head wound that 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 signifies to us that the, the, this is the other of the story that we're dealing with not necessarily the bad guy but it's definitely the, the part of the story that um this is what shouldn't be here um, and I, I think that that goes, it's a very subdued way to portray, uh, that sense of otherness as opposed to Crimson Peak, which, you know, that's, it's right. In your you face. know, they got yeah. the Javier Botet as the fucking ghost and like, whatever it, it's terrifying, but it's definitely a lot more like sort of blasted from the rooftops than this movie is. I mean, you could ah, you could yes. you could argue that the only literal ghost is the kid, but the whole movie is about our past haunting us, right? Like this is a yeah, movie yeah, in yeah. which every character is carrying some weight that they shouldn't have to carry from the past. Yeah, and that everyone, even even our villain, is a bit of a haunted figure, and I think in doing that, uh, he also highlights how. Um, we're defined by our decisions, right? Like he, you know, the the man who is truly the villain of this film is not that different from every kid at that orphanage. He's just made a series of decisions in relationship to the circumstances he found himself in, and it's taken him to a certain place. And it's not impossible that any one of those kids facing similar circumstances, yeah, they could have ended up that way given a long enough timeline and enough poor decisions that they feel sort of trapped in. At the same time, and this is what's so masterful about it for me, um, all of that humanization is not meant then to take away from your feeling of justice when that dude fucking gets it. You're not like, oh, man. You're like, yeah, man, fuck that guy. It's like this realization that the fact that there is a story for who you are doesn't take away from the evil that you do. Yeah. And that a lot of it is coin operated. Like his motivations ultimately is gold. Right. And it's like for, despite being like all this like rich backstory and underpinning, like the fact that he's just doing all this out of greed. Ah, masterful. Masterful. And I don't know how different that is from anyone else. Right. Like I bet if you pushed hard enough, you could really figure that a lot of people uh, who were on the other side supporting Frank Gal were motivated by greed, right? Like, isn't that the yeah? The, it, again and again, fa- we think of fascism as a particular kind of viewpoint, but a lot of times when fascists come into power, it's almost always because of people's anxieties around communism. Like that, that's that that the, is. I mean, you could look at. I mean, go, just going to Nazi Germany, like the the the, right. the 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 demographic that allowed Hitler to rise to power wasn't. Uh, scared poor people. It was terrified middle class business owners who were anxious about fucking money. That's and, and and that's why they voted for Hitler because it was like he was like no 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 we'll take care of you. 
will kill juice too. And they were like, I didn't quite hear that last part, but I heard the part about where you said you were going to take care of the money. So I'll vote for you anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's what, uh, you know, what's his name in this? Jacento, uh, Jacento, the, the groundskeeper. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, that's, I mean, he fucking killed a child to get this, yeah. this money. You know what I mean? It's, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. His motivations definitely are. I, I don't think he's necessarily a bad person, but you know, dude did the arguably the most terrible thing you can do in the world in pursuit of, you know, Mammon's glory. Well, I think that's what makes uh, Del Toro such a masterful director, writer, all those things, is because you can both see how he ended up here, but still be horrified. It's not like some fucking, like, uh, you know, some like Joker thing where you end up loving the Joker despite the evil that he does. That's not, you know, mm-hmm. this is not an anti hero situation. I just want to say that Li- no. Liam speaks for himself when he says, you love the Joker. Liam speaks for himself, doesn't speak for me. A lot of people end up loving the Joker because of including you, writing, in my opinion. Uh, let's not go there, please. I mean, don't be <laughs> wrong. The Joker's not a fascist like Batman, so I guess that's true. Appealing. True, <laughs> true. So I'll say that right out in everybody's face. But uh, yeah, no. Um, I, I think it what what Del Toro does in this movie for for not just. Uh, Jacinto, uh, but with all the characters here, even some of the young kids, is we get to see their whole humanity, and we get to see where they are uh, doing good things, and we get to see where they're not. You know, even the complicated figure of the uh, fiance, right? Like, how much does she yeah. see that he's a monster? But he, but she wants an out. She wants to get out of there, and so he is her way out. You know what I mean? That there's a sense yeah. in which. Um, uh, we get to see the full flaws and benefits of these folks while still being allowed to not like him and 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 feel okay with the idea that he has something coming agreed it's a it's a so it's good. a beautiful movie it's super compelling if for whatever reason you haven't uh, seen it and you're and you're listening to this I recommend seeing it it, it holds surprises for you uh it, it is i i still find it um a very kind of edgy anxiety filled film even though i know what's going to happen it still gets under my skin mm-hmm. so if you've never seen yeah. it i highly recommend it absolutely yeah consequent viewings man still holds up it's still so fucking good yeah del, del toro he's one of the great storytellers of our time i've been saying that for years and it's this films like this that make me believe that you know, this is this is this yeah. is this is equal. This is a film in which the melancholy and the terrifying can exist in the same space at the same time, and it takes it takes a master to be able to do that. And you know, he does it. I, I and let's not forget that Mike Mignola did the cover. Yes, that it's so I, good. I definitely have that poster. So yeah, it's so I good. Put it so up. cool. Um, yeah, man, it's great. Uh, this movie is great. I think it's one of his best. I don't know if it is my favorite of his. I don't know, actually. I have to think mm. about that. But it, it might be. It might be my favorite uh, Del Toro movie, which is saying a lot. Um, I know some people, you know, we got those people out there who, whether it's 
uh, Blade 2 or uh, the Hellboy movies who maybe are doubters of Del Toro. A lot of people didn't even like Shape of Water, which I don't understand, but I know that those folks exist. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, I, I think you should see it. I think this is the movie that even people who aren't big Del Toro fans should probably like. And uh, I would be yeah. surprised if you didn't enjoy it, regardless of what you thought of his other films. I just think it's so smart. It's so well written. It's so well acted. It looks so good. Um, you know, it's it's it might be uh, 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 not what you're expecting, and I think it, it, it it's not what you're expecting in a pleasant, uh, very satisfying way. Uh, and I love that about the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, guys, did we just get to the end of our cursed episode? I think we made it through. We did despite, we made it? Despite all of our issues yeah. and fucking technical difficulties and all that stuff. Unbelievable. You know what? This gives me hope for a brighter future. I want you guys both to know that. I, I feel you. That. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Justin, thanks for being our guest on this and, uh, you know, yeah, working Justin, with us on all this stuff. Thanks for being my friend, oh, man. man. Thank you for having me. I love coming on the show to talk with you. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it more. Yeah. It's going to be good. I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I'd love if we did like regular Patreon things where we had no topic and we just all shot the shit together. I think that would be fun. Yeah. I'm down. down. I'm in. Let's do it. Well, uh, we want to wrap this up because it's, it's pretty late for Justin and it's a little late for me and Josh, fuck him. Who cares? But uh, uh, we just want to go ahead and say, hey, uh, check out our Patreon. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Please check out the other Tell sh- your friend. Yeah, check out the other shows on the network. We got a lot of great shows. There's always new ones in the hopper that we're going to be premiering. We're about to have some new shirt designs. Check out the shirts. And really think about you know supporting us because uh, we can more regularly um, create content for y'all when we have more support. So think about helping us out. But to everyone out there who listens and tells people about the show, that is also support, and we thank you for it. Yes, thank you. Yes. All right, episode 121. Done. Aye. Under the black sun, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder. And danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. like spooky movies, hair-raising tales, insightful criticism, judgmental hot takes, then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products.